This is Democracy, a podcast that explores the interracial, intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's most influential democracy. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Uh, we're very fortunate uh, this week. Uh, we have an opportunity to talk to one of the leading international figures uh, in the world of environmental activism and scholarship around environmental uh, issues. Uh, he is Alon Tal. He's, uh, as I said, one of the leading environmental activists and academics in Israel. He's the founder of the Israel Union for Environmental Defense, the founder of the Arava Institute for Environmental Studies, and he's a professor as well as chair of the Department of Public Policy at Tel Aviv University, which, which is one of the great universities, uh, not just of the Middle East, but of the world. Uh, Alone, it's wonderful to have you here. It is terrific to be here. Thanks for the invitation. It's great to be in Texas. We're so happy, so happy to have you here. Uh, we're going to open, of course, with our scene-setting poem from Mr. Zachary Suri. What is your poem titled today, Zachary? Nothing. Nothing? Yeah, okay. it's titled Nothing. Okay, let's, let's, let's hear something about nothing. Mm-hmm. Nothing. Cities don't take long to sink underwater into the ominous depths. When the waves come to Miami and New York, what will they do with the leftover concrete? Seas don't take long to become desert and dry sand. When the clouds leave the arrow forever, what will they do with the leftover salt? Houses don't take long to fold in heavy winds. When the hurricanes wash along the coastlines, what will they do with all the plywood in the streets? Leaders don't take long to forget all the suffering people they've met. When promises and obligations are forgotten, what will we do with all the empty words? And why are we left just taping jumbled letters to construction fences just to see some meaning in the words, the sounds and smells of the sand blown from the dump trucks in the wind? And why do we keep finding ourselves taping prayers to the roofs of our minds to send our worries into some invisible electrical signal to some higher power in boats across the Mediterranean? And what will we do when the UN is flooded by the East River, when Brussels in the winter feels like Barcelona? Where will they go to do nothing when you can't ski in the Swiss Alps and mountain resorts where they do nothing? What will we do with all the pages they put on PDFs for us to read so they can forget them? It doesn't take long to lose a planet, to lose a home. When we've destroyed it all, where will they meet to do nothing? Hmm. That's a somewhat morose poem this week, Zachary. Yeah. What what are you what are you uh, trying to say? Well, I think this is really about um, sort of the frustration that I think many people feel, and in fact, I think many other politicians feel, and, and that is that when leaders come together in these big like summits to try and solve climate change problems, it seems that there's a lot of big talk, a lot of a lot of words put forth on PDFs and things like that, and we don't actually come to some solid agreement and nothing ends up being done because there are so many different parties and so many... I, I would just add that to hear a poem like this from a from a 14-year-old actually brings to my mind the, the only really positive thing we can say about the present situation in our attempt to get to climate stability, and that is that it's the one issue, I think, since the 1960s where we feel a younger generation is genuinely pushing yes. the establishment and the grown-ups to do something and putting a mirror in front of our face and saying, this is not acceptable. And, of course, uh, Greta yes. is, 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 uh, is the leading figure, but it's uh, lots and lots of young people like uh, your son who are out there uh, really speaking truth to power. So I, I salute you and I agree with everything. Where it was a, a, quite a quite inspiring poem. And, and and alone is is it making a difference, or, or are these young people affecting outcomes? Well, I think that 
Part of the problem in climate change from the start is that it seems so remote. Yes. You know, it's something that happens very incrementally. And so, uh, yes, we know that, uh, you know, the there'll be tipping points, but eventually the water really won't flood the Manhattan for another 50, 60 years. So we're leaving this problem to our kids. So it really does come to this issue of transgenerational yes. justice. And so I think what happened this summer with all the bad news from Greenland and the Amazon, whatever, and this this cry and... and, uh, and um, I would say voicing of the frustration and anger of a younger generation is that people began to say, oh, maybe this is something which we can no longer put off as, Mm -hmm. you know, there's always, you know, pressing and important, uh, you know, demands. This has now become a pressing and important demand. And and, and why is it so hard for leaders who, who of all different kinds of political stripes, who claim to care about their nations and care about the future, why is it so hard for them to address this? Well, it has to do with the time horizons of politicians that they don't usually see between four or five years. The kind of investments we need to make to change our economy are are things that take more than four or five years to see the return and benefit on it. And in general, it's very hard for politicians to think in the long term. It's just not built into the human DNA. Remember, we, our brains evolved from small groups of people. The most we could ever think about was, you know, 30 or 40 people. So to get your arms around uh, future generations and hundreds of years, it's just a very difficult thing to do. Yeah. But we live in societies, particularly you and I in the United States and Israel, where we had generations, like we can think of the founding generation of both of our societies, that clearly thought in terms of uh, generations. Uh, why have we lost that? Uh, or have we lost that? You're absolutely right. You know, during Israel's first decade, when people were being rationed four eggs a day, maximum wow. protein, we still put 60% of our overall investment infrastructure into water uh, systems that would provide water to so that everybody around the country could buy water inexpensively and in dry land areas, just like Texas knows, to provide <laughs> yes. for an agricultural economy. And that was is a, a tremendous sacrifice by a founding generation who just wanted it to be better for their kids. And so uh, when I think about this, often I think about this notion of the politics of sacrifice. Can we get a generation to go back to these kind of values? And it's tough because we are, uh, you know, very, very individualistic and we're at some extent self-indulgent. But I think we can remind ourselves that every parent knows have that just how much they're capable of sacrificing. It's something you don't understand until that baby's crying yes, in the next room yes. and you're dying to sleep and you get up and you feed it and walk the floors with it anyway. And I think if we can frame this as something that we owe our kids some hope of climatic stability, that's a way to uh, to frame the issue. And, and is that something you work on? I work on it all the time. Uh-huh. Different ways, different contexts, but yeah, I think it's something that unites environmentalists around the world. And, and what are some of the framings that, have you, that you found that have been most effective? Well, in, in Israel, of course, we are a dry land country. Right. And and in most time when I go around the world and talk, I can't always explain what this means. When you speak in Texas, people get it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so so for us, uh, a few mm-hmm. years of drought means a whole lot. And that's what we've seen, for example, uh, the Sea of Galilee, which is, of course, uh, the world's lowest freshwater lake. But most people know of it as sort of the place where Jesus preached much of his life and walked across the waters, presumably. And uh, it reached its lowest point in recorded history this past November. Wow. So these are these are things which we recognize. And as for Israelis, this is their only place where they have any kind of a recreational outlet with fresh water. We can't let that go and turn into another Errol Sea or Lake Chad or whatever is your, your example. So I think water uh, resources is one way that we can bring these issues home and, and do it. I spent a lot of time trying to, to work on those issues. And of course, uh, the whole challenge of 
trying to reverse the sixth extinction and deal with biodiversity as, as really perhaps the most single most pressing uh, and irreversible uh, problem we faced. It- in the American tradition, you know, in our history, we, we often uh, use apocalyptic warnings as a way of mobilizing people. So think about the warnings of nuclear war in the 1950s and duck and cover drills and things of that sort. It does seem that those apocalyptic warnings aren't as effective today. It's funny. I have a very close colleague named uh, Dorit Carrot who has developed with other uh, of her uh, experts a certain notion which she calls positive sustainability. And mm. she often says much more gently than I'm going to say it now. She said, Lord, you have uh, uh, a fine tradition of preaching doom and gloom. I'm a very big advocate about uh, addressing overpopulation and trying to get right. to uh, some sort of caring capacity that's reasonable. And she said, you're not going to do it by scaring people because that tends to paralyze. People need hope. You need to yes. give them these elements. And she looked, dips into the, the literature of positive psychology, which is you need to give people small implementable tasks they can get their arms around. Yes. They don't feel this kind of complete alienation and, and sense of uh, inability to change anything. So we have to give people that hope and practical things to do. And this is starting locally in many cases, right? right? Zachary? Um, well, climate change is an issue that's so international that, that, that one country just deciding to change course can't, can't reverse the whole problem. How do we bring together uh, so many different parties with so many different points of view on this issue to actually solve a problem that affects the whole world? Well, this is the great challenge of international environmental law. I teach courses in it, and it's very frustrating. I've represented Israel in, at UN conventions where you sit there with 192 people and you're, you're locked into this lowest common denominator scheme. That's the way international conventions or agreements are designed. You want everybody on board, and that means that you often have to have language that you feel is completely fluffy and doesn't get you in here, but it's your only hope. When I talk about an Israel, Israel's a small country. We're only now approaching 9 million people. We have a lot of uh, space in the news, but in fact, it's a small country. So oftentimes when you raise this issue, they say, well, you know, our situation is so exceptional. We have such great security challenges in the Middle East, and our emissions are so modest. Why, why would it matter? And I always give them example from the military. Uh, all of us in Israel have been soldiers. I was in the paratroopers. And one of the things they do in Israeli army training is give you uh, the challenge of carrying your buddies around on stretchers, hmm. sometimes for as much as 30 or 40 miles. Wow. In tough terrain, in the heat, whatever. And the notion is when you are in a battlefield situation and a friend of yours is wounded and you need to run them to the back of the line to a medic four or five kilometers back, if you know you've done it 60 or 70 kilometers, four or five kilometers or nothing. Right. And invariably in any of these units, there's always one person when the going gets tough, tough and you're exhausted, Somehow they don't change you when you raise your hand and say, I, my shoulder's really hurting now, I'm tired, could somebody else take the, the, the stretcher? They don't come under there. And we know very quickly who they are, and they don't last, and we have a very, very derogatory term, which we won't use here, which we describe those kind of people, but basically they're misanthropic people who are egoistic, have no place in a combat unit. And They become politicians then? Is that <laughs> in some, some countries. But my point is, is that we in Israel can't become that soldier who doesn't yes. get under the international stretcher that is going to carry us into some sort of better future in terms of our climatic situation. And we have to all realize that if we're not all under that stretcher, then the the the, the, the injured planet Earth will not get to safety. You know, it's it's such a wonderful metaphor because one of the things that, that any historical analysis teaches us is that even though we might see ourselves as the center of the universe, if we're the CEO or the president or whatever, that over time we're really just one person holding up a stretcher, a stretcher we don't actually control. Uh, but it does seem as if in our, in our social media and world today, in our world of hyper-individualism and consumption, this is a hard message uh, for people in both of our societies, I think. And it's 
striking how both of our societies have changed on this, right? Right. I mean, I, I want to say a word or two, and I don't want to get politically biased here, but I want to say a word or two in praise of the previous president of the United States, Barack Obama. Sure. Because uh, when we look at what progress has been made, if you want to look at something concrete, there was this agreement in Paris, which took place in 2015, where the world for the first time really committed itself across the board, even developing countries, to quantitative, measurable reductions in their greenhouse gas emissions. It didn't happen by itself. It happened because there was an almost an obsessive Secretary of State by the name of John Kerry who went around to over 92 world leaders and played hardball and said, listen, we'll help you financially, we'll support you militarily, but you need to fi- uh, submit an INDC, a national action plan about what you're going to do for climate change. And, uh, you know, um, Bar- uh, Barack Obama won very early in his uh, presidency a uh, Nobel Peace Prize. I don't know if he deserved it then, but by the end of Paris, he certainly deserved it because we, we, we need that kind of leadership. And so when you say, how do you sell it? I think it, 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 call, it goes to leadership. We need somebody to stand up and, and, and call people to be uh, reach their higher selves. We, we've had it in war times. And in a sense, this is almost a, a warlike situation. So I, I look to the world for leadership. Um, and there are some bright hopes there, but unfortunately, not everybody's listening to the, the prime minister of New Zealand. But, <laughs> but, but, but I do believe that, that this, uh, this is cyclical and there will be uh, great leaders will step up to, make, to inspire it, it, us. It's sort of like you need someone under the stretcher who calls upon everyone to be better at holding the stretcher up, not trying to do it himself or herself, but also not uh, absconding without doing his or her duty, right? Right. I mean, that, that was indeed uh, when uh, George uh, W. Bush was the president, when he was sort of stalling on climate change, he argued that was the problem, that China and India were not on board, and therefore he could not cripple American industries with industries with, with expectations. But today, China and India are on board, and I would argue, unfortunately, because of uh, President Trump's uh, lack of enthusiasm for climate change agreements, they're actually moving forward at a faster pace than the U.S. is. And, and so I think today we do have that, and that all comes from the Paris uh, Accord, which has not fallen, despite the, the uh, retreat and the American commitment to it. So I, I do think there's a basis for help. And, you know, it's like a lot of things. It's an imperfect system, the, the U.N. and all these agreements, but it's the only one we got, so we have to make it work. So, so what would you, you're a scholar of the environment and a, and a public policy. If you were brought in by the next Israeli prime minister, and they'll probably be a new one soon, or uh, the next American president, uh, what would you... Uh emphasize as the first steps to take in world leadership? Well, I think about this a lot. I'm, like I said, in a political party, and I assume that the uh, my party will form the government and will have the Ministry of Environment portfolio, and I hope to have a, a senior position there. And one of the things that I would start with is, well, if our founding fathers had a very visionary founding father, David Ben-Gurion, was looking at what would he say? And he would have said, we have to become very quickly the very first carbon neutral country. There is no reason today, technologically, that a country could not be uh, moved to 100% renewables by 2030. I mean, in terms of capacity, Denmark is already at 50%. And it used to be, they'd say, well, they have the problem that, you know, the sun doesn't shine at night, so we can't do solar energy. But the the remarkable drop in prices amongst in storage capacity yes. in lithium batteries in the last two years is unimaginable. Uh, uh, it's going to go down another 50%, the figure, in the next two, three years. So I'll, already, I'm not, uh, to build power plants that rely even on natural gas is irresponsible. You are saddling the next generation with infrastructure which is no longer the cheapest and the best. Right. So thank heavens there has been dramatic technological advancement to make it easier, to give us that sort of tailwinds to move forward. So I would start with, let's start saying um, we have to cut 6% a year of emissions. The way to start, of course, is, is to make solar option the default 
power uh, supply unless you have access to wind or to geothermal or something. Right, right. And, and that's a wonderful connection to UT because one of the inventors of the lithium-ion battery who just won the Nobel Prize, uh, Dr. Goodenough, uh, is one of our faculty. And, and this is a case where technology really opens opportunities, doesn't it? It is. And, and you, we would like to think that people are going to do it by eating less beef and, and, and you know, <laughs> taking electric scooters or bicycles to work. And that is part of the solution. I don't want to absolve us of responsibility, right. but if somebody's pragmatic, it's much easier as a policymaker to disseminate technologies which are cheaper right. if we only had the political will. Um, but how do you convince uh, sort of everyday people that by helping to solve climate change, which seems like this faraway problem, they're not going to be sacrificing the very quality of life that they're supposed to be trying to protect by implementing these measures? Well, that's sometimes a hard sell when you want to say, well, you want to pay a higher price for electricity. But with the, the amazing thing today now is, is that if you actually look at the numbers, if you want to build a new uh, energy generating capacity, and Israel's growing very quickly, we have to provide 3 or 4% increase in electricity generation every year. It's just less expensive. So that, that, the energy thing is not uh, that much tougher to do. If you want to convince somebody to buy an electric car, I think it's very easy to make the case that within four or five years, that car is going to be saving you money. And, you know, people used to be so anxiety-ridden about, well, I could be stuck without a charge. I have a friend in San Francisco who just got one of the latest Teslas, and he's got the money to buy it. But he says he can go all the way to Los Angeles and back on one charge. So, so again, technology is coming to the rescue. But ultimately, I'm a, uh, an optimist. I believe people are fundamentally good. And if you give them a challenge and say, let's do the right thing. You know, Lady Bird Johnson, I was walking around the the, um, the Johnson Library. She did it on beautification yes, and throwing yes, trash in there. Yes. It affected me as a kid growing up in the United States. I remember uh, that all the norms, if anybody would think of throwing a piece of trash, they were embarrassed to do that because people do want to do the right thing by, by the people around them. I think ultimately people are, uh, people are altruistic. That's what uh, Lincoln called the better angels of our nature. And I think we have to remember that that's there. Uh, that's a good point to transition to how we always like to close our podcast, which is on positive steps that our listeners can take in their own lives to make a difference and using this history and analysis to, to empower them. So what's your advice, especially to our young listeners, Alon? Well, I, first of all, in terms of tra transportation, uh, everybody who's a cyclist or anybody who has, uh, likes to walk to school as opposed to getting a ride is already uh, making a concrete and real contribution. That's the thing about climate change. It can be anything. Um, recently, I want to recommend a brand new documentary I saw two days ago with the, with, with the heads of our political party called Game Changers. It's uh, produced by this guy Cameron who made the Titanic and all those okay. other things. But it is a movie which provides, I think, completely compelling evidence about the advantages of a plant-based diet. Something which has been very slow for me taking, but when my daughter came home from the Israeli army and said, I've decided I'm moving from vegetarian to vegan, because in the Israeli army, they've made it so easy because Israeli, Israel has the highest percentage of vegans in the world. And in the, in the age ranges of 15 and 25 or 30, it's off the chart. And uh, some of it has to do with animal welfare, but there's a lot to be said for better ac athletic performance. And of course, the environmental benefits are huge. 17% of our climate, uh, of our carbon footprint comes from the beef industry. Wow. Now, I know that's a hard sell here in Texas, but I think that uh, this is something that uh, more and more people are beginning to see that not only is it not 
not healthy to eat so much meat. And not only is it bad for the planet, but if you're a professional football player, you're going to be have much better performance if you eat a plant-based diet. So think about, you don't have to become a vegetarian or vegan overnight, but you can certainly do the Meatless Monday. And you know, maybe if you eat meat once or twice a week, you've also, as opposed to seven days a week, you've also done something very important to save this uh, troubled earth of ours. So no brisket for you on Passover? No brisket for me on Passover. I'll, I'll just stick with the gefilte fish and probably uh, the, the, the other equivalent. But I think there's, there's many things to do, and there's not one, uh, one size fits all. The most important thing is don't think you have to do everything. Right. But take a step in the right direction and feel that you're part of something global. And again, I'll start back where I st- uh, be- began, that this is something that the younger generation yes. is coming together. These climate strikes, we have them in Israel. I don't know if they have them here in Austin. Yes, and we did a whole episode on actually the students who organized the climate strike here in Austin. Well, that's tremendous. For us, it's, it's, it's literally high school kids. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, you know, we have them lying down on the streets and saying, we, we demand better. And I, I salute that kind of, uh, you know, revolutionary yeah. spirit. It's what exactly what we need to shake, rattle the cage a bit. Very well said. Zachary, is, does, does this provide hope for, for your generation? I mean, there's so many problems in the world. Does this, is this a, an organizing principle, a motivating factor? Yes. I, I really think it's, it's something that, that really motivates young people from, from all sides of the spectrum because it's something that we see will really affect us when we get to be our parents' age. But at the same time, I do think there's, there's a very much a growing frustration with the way that, that people have feel like they've improved themselves, but on a larger national scale, international communities and international organizations have not been able to come together to solve solutions. Well, I have to end you on a more positive note. When I was coming of age, a little bit older than you, but not much, the issue was the depletion of the ozone layer. Right. The hole right. in the ozone layer right. was considered to be, it was an existential problem. If you live in Argentina or in Australia, you knew that you could not go swimming with uh, without going a full body suit because you were going to get skin cancer, that the... the, the UV radiation coming from the sun was not going to be deflected because the the, the um, ozone layer was being depleted by C- uh, CFCs and freons and other uh, chemicals we were releasing to the environment. And the United Nations made a treaty, and it wasn't tough enough. And actually, a conservative politician, Margaret Thatcher, said, you know what? We can do better. And she called all the world leaders to uh, to London, and they made a very tough schedule. And you know what? Today, the ozone layer is healing itself. Now, that was a magic bullet there in terms of the technological solution, but it showed when the world uh, community works together, this was a problem that seemed insolvable that was going to bring us down, and we overcame it. So we, there are solutions. Same thing with whales. They were going, going, gone, and yet now with new whaling uh, conventions in place now for several years, they have rebounded. We have to do our part, and policymakers have to send clear messages and let nature be resilient. And and I think it's such an important message that you've delivered alone based on your scholarship and, and your eloquent words. Uh, historical change happens with consciousness rising, right? And Amen. Uh, there was a time when societies had dueling and then dueling was ended. There was a time when slavery was common, right? Um, and as you say, there, there was a time when people didn't care about the ozone layer. And what changes is when a generation decides that they won't accept that anymore. It might not change their politicians immediately, but it changes their behavior patterns. And, and to me, I, I'm so optimistic because uh, I meet so many young people and they all care about this, whether they are a Democrat or Republican, Arab or Jewish. I think actually this crisis could be something around the environment that actually brings people together. Already is. It affects everyone. It affects affects everyone. And and we're fortunate to have scholars and activists and politicians like you, Elon, who who are making this happen. And it's fortunate to have people like yourself, academics, who spread these good words around the world. And to young people who are uh, putting it in words, what we maybe all feel but don't quite know how to say. So thanks for that as well. Well, this has been another wonderful episode of This is Democracy. 
Bureaucracy, please look up Alon Tal on the web. His bio will be uh, listed with our with our program. Uh, he's done some remarkable work, and I'm sure he'll be happy to hear from many of our many of our listeners. And thank you for joining us uh, for this episode of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.